Lord, as we uh, continue looking at the, the clear distinction that you have given between your beloved people of Israel and your, your current work of the church. Lord, I pray that that is an encouragement to us. I pray that it encourages us to see the complexity and the detail and the precision of your plan. Um, we have a very precise God, and so we want to be as precise as possible. Lord, thank you for all who are here this morning. I pray that you would encourage their hearts with the Word of God um, all throughout the day. We pray for a, a, a glorious and full-orbed Lord's Day today. That by the time we lay our heads on our pillows this night, we have been filled up with the Word of God. We have meditated on the truths of heaven, and we have looked forward all the more to the coming of Christ. All because we are together and looking forward to the appearing of our blessed Savior. We thank you, Lord. Feed us this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Reasons to consider Israel and the church as distinct, uh, kind of one of my favorite subjects. I'm just going to quickly go through the first 18, and then we'll finish uh, the, the rest after there. And, and again, I'm not going to go through this slow enough to take notes if you weren't here last time, because uh, we've got to get up to uh, number 19 is where we left off, or 18 rather. So uh, the first reason to have the church in Israel be indistinct, now it forces a, a uh, spiritual interpretation onto huge portions of scripture and, and basically what it does is it forces you to have two different ways of interpreting scripture it forces you to have a, an allegorical hermeneutic and um, my, my friends in the faith and in the ministry who are uh, who do believe that Israel and the church are essentially the same uh, they they bristle at the term allegorical but when you take something that is reasonably literal and you turn it into something else what else do you call that um, what they would say they would say that well no that's symbolic language that's different than allegory allegory says that that a certain passage of scripture never meant that literal interpretation in the first place but we use this example all the time it's pretty easy to see allegory in scripture there isn't that much of it Um, when the trees of the field clap their hands that's symbolism it's also allegorical because there's no tree that can clap its hands and so forth but the, the key difference is we would say a symbol in scripture goes by certain rules um, and usually it tells you it's a symbol you don't just get to decide that something is symbolic that's, a, that's an arbitrary decision and it's purely opinion so there has to be parameters and rules so to simply say um, that these hundreds and hundreds of passages of scripture are now symbolic um, that's actually an even bigger problem I would, have a, I would have a better time respecting this view if somebody said when God gave the land promises to, to Abraham they were always symbolic the moment he gave them um, I, I could sort of respect that and have a difference of opinion with it, but the New Testament priority view that says that that changed, oh, now the universe is imploding because you're, you're saying that God has changed his will. And so um, we would have a problem with that. And so we don't want to spiritualize a ton of scripture. Second reason, I'll go faster. The Bible explicitly promises that God's covenant... Both the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant is eternal and it's unbreakable. So an eternal covenant doesn't mean it gets to change over time. You have the third reason, the Apostle Paul's declaration in Romans 11 that God has not rejected Israel. You have the fourth reason, the other times in Romans 9 through 11 that God keeps the church in Israel distinct. And I listed a bunch of scriptures for you from just Romans 9, 10, 11. You have the fifth reason, the context of Paul saying there's no distinction between Jew and Greek in Romans 10, 12 um, doesn't mean that the Israel and church is interchangeable. And a, and a very basic first year Bible student uh, exegesis of Romans 10, 12 would show that. The sixth reason we looked at, the New Testament explicitly says that the Old Testament promises to Israel are still belonging to Israel. They still belong to Israel. They're not somehow fulfilled in the church or in Christ. Seventh reason, 
The Old Testament teaches the future literal permanent restoration of the nation and it's on a massive scale. And, and there's so much detail that you can't um, really symbolize that away. You can't typology uh, uh, make it go away with typology. Um, you certainly can't allegorize it. Um, and now you're just, it's getting ridiculous. To, to argue over one verse that may or may not be symbolic is one thing. To take huge chunks and swaths of the Old Testament and make it symbolic. We don't want to do that. Eighth reason the New Testament reiterates the future salvation and restoration of Israel. We looked at several scriptures. The apostles, number nine, believed in the restored national Israel and Jesus didn't correct this. Number 10, the New Testament never uses the term Israel for those who are not ethnic Jews. There's no nomenclature, there's no name for new Israel. Um, the, only, the only slight way we might say there's a new Israel doesn't have to do with the people, has to do with the location. Um, the term new Israel is never used, but in new heavens, on new earth, in, with new Jerusalem, what would you call that nation? I'd probably call it new Israel. But that's, that's the only way you could get there. It's certainly not the church being new Israel. You have number 11. The New Testament still consistently refers to national Israel as Israel, even after Pentecost. That's a, that's a huge inconsistency with the view that the church and Israel are, are indistinct. Number 12, Acts maintains a clear distinction, retur- referring to Israel 20 times and Ecclesia 19 times um, it, when they're used similarly or, or in the same location. Thirteenth reason, commonly used proof texts for the replacement or fulfillment position. And I give you a list of them here. They all have very reasonable explanations within a framework of a distinct church in Israel. In other words, if a verse is, um, is a, a little bit amorphous, if it's a little bit indistinct, and there are lots of verses in the Bible that are indistinct, um, but they are, uh, the, the rule is you always interpret the less clear with the more clear. A verse that's indistinct and has a couple of uh, potential uh, interpretations, you don't get to just pick yours and say, see, that proves my view. It really doesn't. Um, this evening, I'm going to be talking about um, 1 Corinthians 15, what does baptism for the dead mean? And we're going to plant our feet firmly in midair on that because you cannot say I'm taking one position for sure and that verse proves it. And we have to be intellectually honest about that. Every single one of these verses that I listed up here in reason number 13 all have very good and frankly even more logical explanations from the framework of a distinct church in Israel. One of my favorites, Matthew 19.28, explicitly says that the apostles will rule over Israel. And there's, there's no getting around that. You have the 15th reason. The apostles preached the restoration of Israel to Israel's leaders in Acts 3. I think it's pretty important that one of the very first sermons in the history of the church was on the restoration of Israel. That, that's, that's huge. I, I mean, you know, if, if the apostles could look down the road and say, wow, we have, we have at least 2,000 years of church, uh, church going on before us here. What are the first few things we should preach? Well, Peter preached a salvation sermon in Acts 2, and in Acts 3, um, they're preaching the restoration of Israel. So they felt that was pretty important. Number 16, Romans 9, 6 indicates that believing Jews are the true Israel. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then number 17, Paul says that God is faithful to Israel because of his specific promises to the patriarchs. Romans eleven twenty eight. as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So that is that, that speaks to the character of God. And I, I want to reiterate this before we go on to some of the others, and I, I frankly saved some of my favorite ones for last. Um, 
We want to reiterate that this is not for the sake of winning a theological argument. Um, I would also reiterate we are big time in the minority um, as far as Christianity uh, in general, as far as even Kern County. Uh, we're, we're in the minority. We're like the, the, a few dispensationalists going, yes, church and Israel separate. And so it's not about winning an argument because we won't win. There, there are many men much smarter than I am that can, that can uh, give their viewpoints. But this is about the character of God. This is about a God who keeps promises, a God who doesn't have to um, write us a second testament to reinterpret the first testament. Uh, To me, that's, you know, if you have a book and it has a second and third edition to that book, to me, to say the New Testament is reinterpreting the Old Testament is like saying Bible 2.0, Bible second edition um, that adds some things and so forth. So... It's about the character of God. It's about the fact that God always had one plan, and that plan has, been, uh, has remained consistent. Let me go on to reason number 18. This is a little bit technical. I won't take a lot of time on it. I read to you last time Amos 9, 11 through 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen. And this is the, the classic passage about the millennial kingdom where the, the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. This picture of just intense um, prosperity in this new kingdom, uh, primarily uh, shown by agricultural prosperity. But Amos 9, 11 through 15 is quoted in Acts chapter 15. And it shows that Gentiles becoming the people of God is consistent with prophetic uh, predictions. It's not intended as a comprehensive theology of all the continuities and discontinuities between Israel and the church. Um, James, in Acts 15, he never says that Amos 9 is fulfilled. Just that the prophets agree and that there will be Gentiles uh, who are called by the name of the Lord. So, uh, in other words, you can't use a comparison of Acts 15 and Amos 9 to say, aha, uh, Israel is gone. Um, A closer study shows that he's simply using the text uh, exactly right. By the way, there are in the New Testament, by some counts, um, about 365 uses of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And there are about three of those that are disputed, but the other 362 for certain always use the same context. It never reinterprets the Old Testament. Testament, not one time. So to say that the New Testament reinterprets the Old is a big, big stretch. You have a three in 365 chance that that's happening. Number 19. Israelite language is used in the New Testament, but this bears witness to all the continuities, not to some sort of complete amalgamation. And I think a good example is 1 Peter 2. 9 and 10, Romans 9, 24 through 26, it uses very Jewish language. But this doesn't, this doesn't negate a distinction at all. Uh, how many of you have heard the phrase, the priesthood of the believer? Of course. That, but that's not something, you, you didn't learn that in first grade. You didn't learn about priesthood. You didn't wake up, unless you grew up Catholic, priesthood was not normal to you. But we're called the priesthood of the believers, or we're called the priesthood in that we represent God to men, we represent men to God, and so forth. So that's a very, very Jewish concept. We've never lived under a priestly system. Um, I, I always think it's, it's cute when um, recently saved Catholics treat me like a, a priest. And I've even had some say, now, Father, uh, Pastor, and <laughs> it's like, please don't say that. The lightning's coming. Um, Jesus said, don't call anybody Father. Uh, because we, but we didn't grow up in that. Almost none of us did. So, yes, the Bible uses um, very Jewish language at times to speak of the church, but that doesn't mean that we're all the same. It means that there are continuities. And we said that last time, way more continuities than discontinuities. We'll talk about Isaiah more later, but Isaiah 19, 24, and 25 predicts that someday God will call Egypt my people. What's that referring to? That refers to saved Egyptians. But Egypt is mentioned alongside Israel as a separate entity, the distinct entity. They're not inculcated. Israel is my people, but they're not Israel. 
And you see Assyria doing the same thing as well. So um, to say that, that the church is the new Israel or Israel is now the church and so forth, that becomes a real problem um, in that passage. That's speaking of a future day. Is Israel God's people or is uh, Egypt God's people today? No, uh, except for Egyptian Christians. There's about 12 of those. Um, Coptic Christianity is, is a false faith. Um, it promotes a false gospel. So the Coptic Orthodox Church, Egyptian Orthodox Church, we would we wouldn't count them as brothers because they believe a false gospel. So that becomes a big problem um, for those that would say Israel and the church are indistinct. Yeah, reason number 21. New Testament prophecy is abounding with predictions of a future Israel. It's all over the place. I, I just finished um, kind of perusing, I haven't read it carefully yet, perusing a book about Israel in the book of Revelation. And it's like an inch thick. It's, it's everywhere. Uh, you could say that one of the major themes of the book of Revelation is Israel. And, and we've noted this before, but from the end of chapter 3 to about chapter 19, um, the church is never mentioned. There is, a, there is a clear distinction, chapters 2 and 3, to the church of Ephesus, to the church at Sardis, and so forth, and then, boop, we're gone. Why is that? Well, my belief is that that's because the church has been raptured at that point and the focus is God's program for Israel and judgment on the earth and then ultimate restoration. That's just the book of Revelation. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, is clearly about future Israel. Jesus is telling future Israelites what to do during the tribulation period. He's saying there will be a nation of Israel. You won't be restored and saved yet, but you're about to be, and here's what you need to do. Paul refers to a future temple in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. That's a, that's a tough question for those who believe that the church in Israel are now indistinct. If you ask them, is God going to rebuild a temple in the future? Most of them would say no. Why would he do that? And that's why they reinterpret the, the millennial temple of, of uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48 as spiritualized, as the church. Because we don't need a temple, right? But is there a temple coming? Yes. And the temple obviously is associated with Jewish worship. It is associated with Israel. And Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 that there's one coming. Reason 22. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. This is speaking of the Gentile elect. This is John 10.16. He made a distinction between saved Jews and saved Gentiles. That there's no other way to interpret that. It's not a distinction of value. It's just a distinction of variety. I have family members that are males and I have family members that are females. Not a distinction of value, just a distinction of variety. Number 23. In my top five favorites, because I love this topic. New Jerusalem will have gates named after the 12 tribes of Israel. This becomes a problem if you believe there is no more Israel. Revelation 21.12 says this. this is, there's clearly a national Israel flavor to this. Um, not to mention Revelation 21.24 says that the nations of the earth will come into New Jerusalem. Now let me talk about the gates for a moment. If the gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel and there is no more Israel, those aren't gates, those are gravestones. Those are, those are sad memorial markers. Oh, remember when there was a tribe of Judah? Remember when there was a tribe of Benjamin? That's, that's horrible. Um, will there be grave markers in, on New Earth? No. Will there be memorials to things long dead on New Earth? I think we could make a case no. And so to turn the gates into memorials now becomes a major problem. Let me put it to you this way. At the gate called Simeon, maybe twice a month, whatever they'll decide, you get to meet Simeon. And at the gate called Levi, you get to meet Levi. And incidentally, you get to meet whatever apostle has been assigned to rule the tribe of Levi. So, New Jerusalem having gates is a big deal. There's only one logical choice where a new Jerusalem is going to be. Again, that's new Israel. 
24th reason, the Davidic covenant demands a national Israel, which is different from the church. Second uh, Samuel 7, very clear about kingly promises. And, and those who believe in no distinction between Israel and the church would say, well, yeah, Jesus is the king of the church. You know, the New Testament makes a very clear distinction. He is not ever called the king of the church. Did you know that? What is he called? He's called the head of the church. He's called the king of Israel and the king of all the kings. Does that make him king over the church? Yeah, by default. But he's never called the king of the church that that I'm aware of. If somebody knows one place, let me know. If it it is there, it's, it's rare. Why is he called king over all the kings? Because he's king over the earth. Why is he called king over Israel? Because he's king over the nation of Israel. Why is he never called king over the church? Because the church doesn't have a monarchy. Okay, we, we serve our Savior, we certainly serve the King, but we don't think of him in those terms quite as much as Israel ought to. Okay, that's the scriptural uh, considerations. I want to do a second part. There are other considerations, not quite as authoritative, but we'll throw some scripture into not quite as authoritative, but you have to you have to explain these away. I think we said last time that the burden of proof is definitely on those who see no distinction between Israel and the church. The burden of proof is on them to prove that there is a there is no distinction. So reason number twenty five. If God changed the definitions of land and nation to mean provision and church, which is what the prevailing view would be then he has deceived Abraham. I I don't know how else you get around that, that that God was deceptive. This would be a breach of covenant, and therefore we could not trust him to keep his promises to us in the church age. Is the land now spiritualized? I read to you from Dr. Gary Burge last time. Quote, Jesus spiritualizes the land in John 15. There is no exegetical basis for this. Uh, Just because a guy has a lot of letters after his name and says something is true doesn't mean it's true. As we've said this before, just because there's two pieces of cardboard with a lot of paper in between called a book, that doesn't mean everything in it is true. So him just saying that doesn't make it true. God told Abram, in Genesis thirteen seventeen, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Why that physical... Abraham went on this long walk, probably took weeks or months. Walk the length and the breadth of the land. That is clear proof that... What would Abraham have thought? Would he have walked from one end to the other and say, I, I thank you, Lord, that you have given this spiritual promise of provision and the church, and that I have now done something symbolic in a land that doesn't matter, that's just a plot of land in the Middle East. Would he have thought that? He would have said, you're crazy. I like this land. I just walked it. I just wore out four pairs of sandals walking this thing. So... Anybody with a reasonable amount of logic would say that Abram, had he found out that God didn't mean it, would have a problem with God, and rightly so. And if we have a problem with God and we're right, then the universe implodes, right? Genesis fifteen eighteen. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I will give this land. Now, Abram probably didn't walk all of this. He walked some of it. But here's the real border from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The current Israel is about five times smaller than the Israel boundaries of the Bible, which Israel has never fully uh, uh, gained yet. So it's big and it's specific. Genesis 17.8, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So we get into real problems when you don't let an original text mean what it originally meant to the original hearer. Who are we to say, you know, 4,000 years after Abraham, um, Abraham audibly heard from God. 4,000 years later, I think we know better and what God really meant. We, we don't even trust what our kids said yesterday, right? So to say that is really the height of arrogance. We, we take uh, the first rule of hermeneutics is that the text speaks for itself. That we don't reinterpret it with other means. So if God has changed the definition of land and nation, then God has deceived Abraham. 
the 26th reason. The church as replacing or being the fulfillment of Israel has strongly been connected with anti-Semitism in history. And I know that covenant theologians sometimes will adamantly deny this. And that doesn't mean that current covenant theologians are anti-Semitic. doesn't mean that at all. This is just an historical fact. A lot of covenant theologians who are also supersessionists, those who believe that Israel is replaced or that churches replace Israel, they'll they'll deny this. But I just want to give you a couple of citations from Barry Horner's book, Future Israel: What Christian Anti-Judaism Must Be Challenged, or Why Christian Anti-Judaism Must Be Challenged. And he makes an airtight case. This is well documented um, for the nature of the association between replacement theology and anti-Semitic leanings. Those two go together. And he documents that because of a belief in no literal eschatological future for Israel, um, he documents the shocking anti-Semitic statements made primarily by Augustine. He's a major contributor still to covenant theology thought. Horner quotes medieval church historian Jeremy Cohen as writing that the medieval church had an anti-Semitic policy largely because of Augustine's influence. That they still listen to Augustine, so they're anti-Semitic. And God bless our brother John Calvin, but he wasn't much better. Because he was very passive toward the Jews, and because he was declaring that the church was the new Israel, this had major implications. This was not a theological argument. Remember, during the Reformation, city governments also controlled the church. That was normal in all, through, all throughout Europe. And so every city that followed Calvin's teaching, generally speaking, expelled all the Jews out of their city. They kicked them out. It wasn't just we're having a friendly theological talk here. It was uprooting lives and and throwing them out because they said God is done with you. It's horrible. Terrible. Calvin's view of Israel literally led to the abuse and mistreatment of Jews. This isn't made up. It's history. Does that mean that John Calvin uh, isn't a great guy? It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that 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 doctrinal belief had major real-life ramifications. Here's the 27th reason. And again, this is not a a biblical reason, but it's worth considering. Here's a short list of Christian Jewish organizations who vehemently cling to the promises of a restored Israel. The Friends of Israel, International Christian Embassy Israel, Jews for Jesus, Chosen People Ministries, and there are many others. And I've, I've spent significant time looking at these ministries, many of them, and a lot of them have either doctrinal statements or they have plenty of articles that demonstrate how they interpret Scripture. You know what they all have in common? They all have in common a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic that they interpret scripture at face value. When God told Abraham, the land you're going to inherit goes from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, it's either the Nile or another smaller river, that that was literal. And so that's what they all have in common. Um, I would love to see our covenant theology brothers have a lot more interaction with these Jewish organizations, Jewish Christian organizations, because Jewish Christian organizations are not happy with covenant theology. They're not happy with replacement theology and they, they write whole magazines, whole websites devoted to this because it, to them, it's like saying, you're trying to erase me. You're trying to, well, let's use today's term. You're trying to cancel all of Israel. You're trying to cancel me as a person, as, as someone who belongs to the, the covenant of Abraham. Here's a 28th reason. The massive inconsistency of views among the Church is Israel proponents. Now, I'm not going to say that there isn't inconsistency among dispensationalists also, but, um, but they're, they're a little bit easier to reconcile and they're, they're uh, a little bit more nuanced. These are massive differences. You have the punitive supersessionism view. That says that God is punishing Israel for her rejection of, of Christ. And that that's not only happening now, but that's always going to happen. Is there some truth to punitive to the punitive view? There is some truth. Um, the, the, the Bible is very clear that the eyes of Israel, the ears of Israel are closed right now to the gospel, except for individual Jews. But nationally, they're, they're closed. They are blinded spiritually. So we would, we would go with that. But that doesn't mean God's done with them forever. That, we don't take the supersessionist part of that. 
You have economic supersessionism, that it was God's plan for Israel's role as God's people to expire with the coming of Christ and be replaced by the church. What does that mean? That means that God never intended Israel to be a permanent entity. I think I could name at least three men who would have a problem with that. Abraham, David, Isaac, Jacob, everybody in the Old Testament. They would all have a problem with that. Then you have the structural supersessionist view. The structural view says that the Old Testament is silent on the formation of our convictions about God's consummating work. Uh, That's a big way of saying that the Old Testament doesn't really address what's going to happen in the end. Really. I, I don't even know what to say to that. Have you read the Old Testament? The only way you can say that is by going backwards and reinterpreting everything in the Old Testament having to do with the end times according to a theological view that you are looking through. That's the only way you could possibly say that. And and ironically, um, those who believe that the church has replaced Israel have been historically the greatest defenders of the inerrancy, the authority, and the inspiration of Scripture. So they believe the Bible. We don't have an issue with that. It's just what they do with it that, that we begin to separate with them. Those are just three major views. And within those camps, there are, there are branches of variations. Uh, strong supersessionists believe that Israel has zero future. The moderates see a plan of salvation for Jews as a group, but no land promises. They're only assured of being part of the church. And so... The, the massive inconsistency, and of course it's going to be inconsistent when you're symbolizing everything, then you're just making it up. And so you're going to have differences. Just because somebody says, this verse means this, what does that prove? It proves that that person said, this verse means this. That's all that proves. I, I never want to preach a sermon to you and just ask you to take my word for it. Um, I, I try not to do that. Now, I can't replicate my uh, couple dozen hours of study on a particular sermon during the sermon. And if I did that, you know, I mean, we'd be here literally for 20 hours. You know, it'd be, well, now, first of all, I read the text 17 times and then I did this. Uh, but neither is it okay to say this verse just means this. Maybe in passing, but that's only if you know what my usual hermeneutic is. But to just simply say, this means this, that's not an argument. Um, And what really gets me is somebody who has more and more letters after their name and has believed their own legend because they get invited to international conferences and they've written books that just because they say it, that makes it true. That doesn't make it true. You still have to do the hard work of proving what Scripture says. Number 29. We've talked about this before. This is sort of like, uh, I don't know how many of you here are football fans. Number 29 is like spiking the football after a touchdown. So here's the spike. Twice in history, God has regathered a completely scattered Israel. That's never even happened once to any other nation. God did it twice with Israel. We wouldn't take those gatherings. There's the exile gathering after the exile, which we're studying in Ezra and Nehemiah. Then there's 1948 Israel. We wouldn't take those as ultimately fulfilling Bible prophecy. Um, uh, post-exile, let me back up. Post-exile regathering does fulfill prophecy to a limited degree, but not the massive prophecies of, I was reading in Isaiah today, of, um, of Israel dominating her enemies. That didn't happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're barely hanging on by their fingernails against their enemies. So we wouldn't take those as necessarily the ultimate fulfillment of the Bible prophecy. But the fact that there, there keeps being Jews gathered in Israel as a nation 3,500 years later. That's, that's unprecedented. There, I, I would defy anybody to find anything in history even one one hundredth of that uh, miraculous level. The 30th reason... The church is a partaker currently of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, but we're not partaking in the physical blessings of the new covenant. That will happen in the next age, and the church will benefit, um, most certainly. So, do we believe in... I'm going to take a little excursus here, just for fun. Trick question. Do we believe in socialism? No. Why is that? 
Because socialism says, and Marxism, it's all the same stuff. Marxism, socialism says that everybody is equal and everybody should get a fair share of everything. And that sounds so good, doesn't it? But the reason it doesn't work is because corrupt people are the one trying to, ones trying to control that. And you end up always with a very, very low class of almost everybody ruled by a very, very small elite ruling class that has everything because they're morally superior and they have to be the ones to redistribute wealth because they know better than anybody. Socialism doesn't work because of sin. Socialism doesn't work because you can't find any place in in scripture that doesn't show a society that doesn't have levels and strata to it. That some serve others and that's never said to be a bad thing inherently. Jesus said if you want to lead you're the servant of all. Right? Um, So when God regathers though and when Christ is ruling on the earth and he begins to distribute land and begins to distribute things and responsibilities, is that socialism? No. Why? Because a perfect, divine, sinless monarch is the one doing all things perfectly and you will get exactly what you deserve. Everybody will. So we don't get that now. Um, you know, most of you make a mortgage payment and, and, and you there's a part of me that goes, wait a minute, land is technically free, right? D- does it ever irritate you to pay a water bill? Like, why am I paying for something that God gave? You know how much water is on the earth? Uh, exactly the same amount God created it to have. There's one exception. Whatever water is in the International Space Station, that's it. <laughs> Everything else, all the water is still here. It just gets redistributed because of sin and, 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 uh, and oppression. But this is so important. God is going to give land and we will ultimately partake in that. Why? Because we're promised to be part of the nations. And you'll be part of that. Uh, I could talk all day about what the nations will be doing when they process into Jerusalem, both in the millennial kingdom and and in the new kingdom. Unbelievable times are coming. So we get the spiritual blessings, but we don't have any of the physical blessings except that the Lord provides for those that are His. Right? He, he hasn't made guarantees to us except to give us every meal we need until our last moment on earth. You know why I know that, uh, that God's going to provide for me? Because I'm still here. And the moment He's done with me, then he'll, he'll quit. Don't need that anymore. Boop, unplug. Okay, that's fine. We have all the spiritual blessings, but the physical blessings... You're going to you're 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 going to have your socks knocked off when you see what a divine, perfect monarch ruling the world, distributing to his children what that looks like: perfect fairness, perfect equity, perfect everything. You go, wow! It'll be it'll be a society like none other. Here's a thirty-first reason. You must interpret nearly the entire, reinterpret the whole book of Isaiah to get rid of a future national Israel, which is distinct from the church in this age. And I, I was looking at that this morning and just doing a quick test. And I, I, didn't, I didn't study this. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But as I was looking through Isaiah, even if you just used your, uh, some of the headings that the publishers uh, put in there, you have Isaiah 2 that talks about the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and be lifted up above the hills. That's one of at least three places in the Old Testament that says that Jerusalem is going to be uh, topographically changed into the head mountain of the whole earth. That Everything else turns into a valley, at least all around it. Um, you have uh, verse 3 in chapter 2. All the people saying, let's go to Israel. Um, you have... Chapter 5, the, the song of the vineyard, um, God uh, uh, essentially grieving the fact that Israel is not following him, but then eventually he's going to uh, restore them. You have obviously uh, Isaiah 9. You have the prophecy of the, the darkness being overwhelmed by the light and that a son is given to us, a child is born, the government is on his shoulders. 
You have chapter 11, or chapter 10 rather, a remnant of Israel, verse 20, will return. Never again rely on the one who struck them. That means that they won't have any, any uh, dependence on other peoples. That's not the case today. That's not Israel of today. You have chapter 11. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from the roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him and all the, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear, and so forth. You have the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the young goat. That's a changed kingdom. That's a changed natural order. You have uh, chapter 14, the restoration and dominion of Israel. Not just as they're restored, but they're going to dominate all the peoples that ever dominated them. That's not happening today. You could go on and on. We could go to uh, chapter 24, which talks about Yahweh emptying the earth, um, and it goes to the uh, the great tribulation, which is right before the kingdom comes. The Yahweh for Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. I just open Isaiah and let it fall open, and you're going to hit millennial kingdom stuff. In fact, one of my favorite commentators on Isaiah warns, um, don't see the millennium in every verse in Isaiah. And he warns that because he says the millennium is only in most of the verses in Isaiah, but not every one of them. All that is to say that, okay, arguing over a verse here and there, no problem. But you're interpreting nearly the entire book. You're reinterpreting it. So that becomes an issue. And then the last reason, you have the the faulty argument from silence. An argument from silence says that if something isn't mentioned, it's not true. Uh, I'll give you an example of arguments from silence. Um, Archaeology, secular archaeology, for years and years has said that people in Bible times, no archaeological evidence has ever shown that they used camels. And the Bible says they use camels all the time. That's an argument from silence. Do you know that the amount of earth actually dug up by archaeologists is so small compared to all the land on earth that it's incalculable? So that's saying in the point, and then put 10 billion zeros, 1% chance that we have found everything. Since we haven't found camel bones, then the Bible is lying. That's called an argument from silence. Now, since then, by the way, people have dug up camel bones, and which is, which is hilarious. Um, archaeology will always show the Bible to be true. It doesn't prove the Bible, because the Bible doesn't need to be proven by outside sources. But it always will. But that's an argument from silence. Here's the argument from silence. That's the, this is a big one. The New Testament doesn't mention the land promises. Meaning the land promises are now only a symbol. That is an argument from silence. There's two problems with this. The first one is that the New Testament does mention land promises. Um, It significantly does. Let me give you one. And this one might surprise you. Who is Jesus speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount? He's speaking, of course, to all believers, but he's speaking to Jews. Right? Blessed are the lowly. For they shall inherit the, what? Earth. It's a word that can equally be translated, blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the land. The land we're standing on. That's what he would have said. That's just one. We could go through a bunch of others. So first of all, there are land promises reiterated in the New Testament. But even if there weren't, what that... that there's that one little page between Malachi and Matthew. That doesn't mean we have two Bibles. It's one Bible, right? If you have a signed contract promising something, you don't need another one just in case the old one suddenly has a new beginning or a new, uh, new meaning, right? In 1651, I love this story, Charles II of England, he was defeated in the English Civil War. He was on the run for his life. His life was saved by a family called the Pendrel family, and they hid him for many days while soldiers searched the area. He eventually escaped, and he never forgot the kindness of the Pendrel family. And in Charles's will, he left a fortune, which was to provide a pension to the Pendrel family. Almost 400 years later, to this day, descendants of the Pendrel family still receive a pension because of this will, because of this contract. That's just an earthly 400-year-old will. 
that's still in that's still enacted. So for us to say, well, the New Testament changes the meaning of the Old Testament, again, we would argue against that. Um, there are tons of land promises in the in the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't have as many of them. Why? Because it doesn't need them. That's like saying all the stones at the bottom of a pyramid, you should have just as many at the top of the pyramid. No, the stones at the bottom of the pyramid are those upon which you build the, the, to the top. So, just to kind of finish this up, where does the problem lie? Why is this such an issue? Well, the, the issue ultimately lies in how we approach the Bible. Proponents of Israel as fulfilled in the church or inculcated by the church or Christ as the total and only fulfillment of Israel, they reach this conclusion because of a theological position. And, and this is so important for us. And I want to read to you from Douglas Van Dorn. And he's a, he's a wonderful man, but he writes of covenant theology and he's very, very convinced uh, by covenant theology. And he writes this. Covenant theology is a system of biblical interpretation which organizes the Bible around covenants. Now, we would disagree with that because the three covenants that he says the Bible is organized around are not named in Scripture. Uh, To me, it's kind of hard to organize something around something you won't even label. That's another issue. He goes on to say, and and we agree with this, the idea is never to have the system drive the Bible, but the Bible is to drive the system. We agree with that. We, we would say that all day long. But he also assumes, and he says, it's impossible to approach the Bible without a theological system in the first place. He says, quote, It is naive to think that anyone approaches the scripture apart from some preconceived network of ideas. I know lots of people who have done that. Yeah, I, I love some of our new believers, and they're like, I just read the Bible. This is amazing. Uh, they're, they're my favorites because you know what they do? You know what their hermeneutic is? Literal, historical, grammatical. Yeah. They, they take the Bible at face value. They don't know there's another option. <laughs> so, do you see what he's saying? Van Dorn is saying, you can't let a system drive the Bible, but you don't know how to interpret the Bible unless somebody's taught you a system first. What do you call that? I call that Catholicism. Not soteriologically, but I call it Catholicism in that you're basically saying smarter people than you are required for you to understand the Bible. That's just put, I, I'm always very suspicious of any system, any person that wants to put a human being between me and Scripture. Yes, we need pastors and teachers. I'm glad we do that. That's, that's my livelihood. But ultimately... If I walk out there and Dave Dahl backs over me by accident, um, do you need me to see the truth of Scripture? You don't. You really don't. So I'm very, very suspicious about saying I need a system by which to understand Scripture. Systems are useful. They are compilations. They are, they are shortened versions to help understand what Scripture says. But the system always comes second. It's always the caboose. The engine that drives it is Scripture itself. And, and I think our covenant theology brothers would say, well, we're no different than you. We have a system that we believe. You have a system that you believe. The difference is, is that we can support our system hermeneutically and they can't. Um, last Sunday night I preached about uh, infant baptism and, and boy I got a plethora of emails and, and uh, some stories from people um, frustrated by Pado baptists trying to explain it to them because you can't the, the, the logic you have to use well you see going all the way back to Genesis 17 and uh, circumcision we, uh, I have all girls so you telling me that, okay so that, that problem goes away first of all right there but it's frustrating because they can't draw an actual hermeneutic uh, line through scripture to say here to here to here this shows infant baptism and they default very quickly to quoting reformers well Calvin believed in infant baptism. Yeah, Calvin kicked Jews out of a city too. Um, Just because somebody does something doesn't mean it's right. So, I believe in our theological system. I believe in uh, in dispensational uh, thought. I believe in premillennialism. I believe in pre-tribulationalism and all of that. But it's because that's what scripture consistently teaches. 
um, one of my one of my favorite theologians, um, Miller Erickson. Uh, he we wouldn't agree with him on a lot of things, but in his section on premillennialism, he says. To be fair, premillennialism is the only version of the millennium that is consistent from Genesis to Revelation in how it interprets Scripture. And he doesn't even believe all of it, but he does say it's, it's consistent. So you cannot approach Scripture with a theological system. And I know that um, if we say that in certain circles, uh, we, my family and I just went to the Puritan Conference, which was basically taught by all covenant theologians and godly men. And, and you go in the bookstore that they had, and it's like covenant theology, covenant theology, covenant theology. Oh, look, 17 books on infant baptism. Um, and, and that's fine, and that's wonderful. If I said that out loud... You can't interpret scripture with a theological system. It's like, you know, because that's just how they've been raised for hundreds of years. So, so I get that and I understand that. We approach scripture with a hermeneutic, not with a theological system. What's the difference? The difference is, is that I can take my theological system and I can deconstruct it using a proper biblical hermeneutic that takes the Bible at face value, that believes that grammar matters, that believes that, uh, that, that history matters, that believes that literary structure matters, that believes that typology matters, that believes that symbolism matters, but, but uh, symbolism is always explained in scripture or it's clear in scripture when you do all that I could then reconfigure the same theological system does that make sense? that you can go either direction if you try to deconstruct covenant theology according to a literal historical grammatical hermeneutic you can't go back to it You you can't traverse back and forth between your theological system and your hermeneutic I think we can do that in our case though What's the difference between a theological system and a hermeneutic? And I'll finish up with this. A theological system... I'll start with the hermeneutic. Your hermeneutic forces you to work and think. The hermeneutic forces you to think. A theological system has done your thinking for you already. And therefore, the theological system just becomes the lens by which you view Scripture. Um, I don't need to take the amount of time that I take every week to prepare sermons. I have plenty of books of men that I trust and believe. And I could just say, you know what, chapter 13 of this book, I trust this guy, I trust the system, I'm just going to preach the chapter. I could play golf four times a week, I could do a lot more woodworking, all kinds of things I could do. But you see, we're not to trust systems, we're to trust a hermeneutic And so you delve into the grammar and into the structure and into what the Bible says. Then if other men can help you, then that's great. One of my professors, uh, Dr. Jim Roskup, he called that the checking principle. Meaning that you don't start with other men, you end with other men. You check your work. He called it looking at the answers at the back of the book. But you work out your own own work first. So I I hope that... um, that you will approach scripture this way. Just take it at face value. Let it say what it's going to say. Um, Pray the prayer of Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And I think that you will find yourself um, looking forward to the amazing future that God has for the church and for Israel and be thrilled and excited by that. So um, we have a couple minutes for questions if you want them or if you need to sneak out, you can too. Any questions?